Gresham College presents Medieval Music, The Lands of the Bell Tower by Professor Christopher Page. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon and welcome to what I am really astonished to find is the last lecture in my second series as Gresham Professor of Music. And the series has been, as some of you may remember, music, imagination and experience in the medieval world. I ask you to imagine a road stretching out of a town sometime in the 1300s, in the 14th century. There are people on foot or on horseback together with wheeled cart traffic as people come and go. On either side of this road, there are mostly open fields, save for a leper hospital. With a community of perhaps 10 or 15 lepers, this hospital has a chapel where the only kind of therapy really on offer is daily prayer and worship. The house is funded from the revenues of a nearby fair, but that doesn't absolve the patients from the need to beg for alms as people pass by the road. One of them is a woman seated by the gate of the leper house. You can see her on the first page of your handout. You can also see that she's actually speaking. And what she's actually saying is, some God, my gentle masters, for God's sake. So some good, some arms, my gentle masters, for God's sake. And she's ringing a bell to warn people of her presence, but also, of course, to attract the attention of the charitable. Well, forlorn and distressing, though that image certainly is. I think it offers a fitting introduction to the subject with which I'm closing my series of lectures. Bells, some small enough, as you will see later, to hold in the hand, others so massive it took days to hoist them into position, accompanied medieval experience from the depths of misery to the heights of religious exaltation and joy. Men and women were summoned by bells throughout their lives, especially the many thousands who committed themselves to some form of the religious life, to some form of enclosure under a rule. Here is the historian Philippe of Harvenkt, that's near Mons, and he died in 1182, and this is what he says. The famous task that bells perform is so widely cultivated that there is scarcely any church or monastery in which the congregation is summoned without the aid of bells, or that the liturgy is celebrated without them heralding the service. When they sound, the weary silence of the night is dispelled. Sleepers are roused to an alert wakefulness Clergy approach the church for the liturgy or for the dawn service, and workers keep watch in various places in order to do their handiwork. The bells sound and speak first with a kind of irrepressible joy. Then the clergy follow with chant or with whatever it is that they've been charged to do. Well, is there really any better place to fonder to ponder what that historian calls the famous task that bells performed in the Middle Ages than London. 
I'm sure you've all seen those engravings of Shakespeare's city showing what is essentially the London known to Geoffrey Chaucer in the Middle Ages. The spires of ancient churches crowd together. St. Mary Le Beau, St. Bride's Fleet Street, All Hallows by the Wall, St. Mildred Bread Street. What a wonderfully expressive litany of names that is, and so deeply evocative of this city's history. Indeed, one of them inspired John Betjeman to capture the mystique of bells on a London Sunday, quite magnificently, I think, when all at first is quiet. He writes, Sunday silence, with every street a dead street, alley and courtyard empty and cobbled mews, till tingle-tang the bell St. Mildred Bread Street summoned the sermon taster to high box pews. And neighboring towers and spirelets joined the ringing with answering echoes from heavy commercial walls till all were drowned as the sailing clouds went singing on the roaring flood of a twelve-voiced peal from pools. Well, as a great haunter of churches, Betjeman knew how that chorus of bells is achieved. You'll know it yourself if you've ever climbed the narrow wooden stairs to share the cramped space of a bell chamber with dust and pigeons. It's done with thick planks, wooden wheels that evoke the lost art of the country wheelwright and heavy ropes, all powered by human muscle. It's a very moving example, or so I have to say I find it, of pre-modern technology once shared by the great sailing ships or the cathedral architects with their wooden scaffolding, their ropes and their pulleys, and yet here it is still in use, serving its original purpose. What's more, many of the bells in these chambers are almost as ancient as the technology used to sound them. Some bell towers actually contain, and I only realized this recently, I should have re realized it a long time ago, actually contain 16th century musical instruments in effect that are still sounding as they always have done. Here, for example, is the peal of bells in the church of St. Bartholomew the Great in Smithfield, which, of course, doesn't stand very far from here. The bells in this peal are all pre-Reformation. They sing now as they did in the time of Shakespeare. The survival of those bells at St. Bartholomew the Great provides a reminder, doesn't it, that London has many ancient peals, despite the ravages of fire and war, which have been considerable. I mean, this city has suffered a very great deal. And if London is the best place to ponder bells in the Middle Ages, then this church of St. Sepulchre without Newgate is one of the choice places within London. The great bell of this church was the one, of course, that tolled when the condemned were led out of Newgate Prison, just nearby, towards Tyburn for execution. And anyone who's looked around this church knows that it houses the small handbell that was rung outside the condemned cell at midnight in Newgate Prison, 
uh, before the morning of any execution, as if the person who knows they're going to be hung, drawn, and quartered the next morning is likely to be asleep, the bell is rung, as it were, to wake them up and to remind them of the need for penance and self-examination and reflection. And this is also, incidentally, a very important church for the art of change ringing, that very distinctive English art. The first ever peal of 5,040 changes may have been rung here in 1690 by the ancient society of college youths who still ring here today, and some of them are present. Welcome to them. And it's probably the bells of this church that figure in the rhyme that we all know, being of a generation, oranges and lemons, as the bells of Old Bailey, again, just across the road. Now, who knows how old that song is? I don't think anybody does. Are there medieval remnants in it? Quite possibly. What we do know is that it first appears in a little publication called Tommy Thumb's Pretty Songbook of 1744. The verse memorializes the bells of some great city churches, almost all of them medieval in origin. Now, I can't resist asking Catherine to perform for you the earliest known version of this song, which actually begins, two sticks and an apple ring the bells of Whitechapel. You have a text on the second page of your handout, together with a page from Tommy Thumb's Pretty Songbook, which gives another well-known early rhyme headed by a woodcut showing the clustered spires of London churches. Two sticks and an apple ring your bells at Whitechapel. Old Father Bullpate ring the bells of Allgate. Maids in white aprons ring the bells at St. Catherine's. Oranges and lemons ring the bells at St. Clement's. When will you pay me ring the bells of Old Bailey? When I am rich, ring the bells at Fleet Ditch. When will that be? Ring the bells at Stepney. Viewed as they deserve to be as musical instruments, bells behave in a very complex way, not all of which I would presume to understand. Imagine one being struck. Well, after the initial clash of metal on metal, which dies away quite soon, we perceive a note called the prime, but not every listener asked to sing that note will sing the same note, but nonetheless there is a prime. Stacked immediately above that, we hear a minor third, and much else growing fainter as you go up. Well, given the way the harmonic language of Western music has developed, and you might argue that it has developed that way partly through the influence of bells, that's something, it's a big subject I can't go into quite now, given the way it has developed, we hear bells as essentially in a minor mode, essentially grave, and threatening, even somber at times, depending, of course, on how large they are and how they're rung and the context in which you hear them. The prime then dies away, leaving what is called the hum. 
and that's an octave lower. The hum, especially in a great bell, emanates obviously from the body of the bell. It can't come from anywhere else. And yet, there's no impact to create it. The impact is gone a long time ago. And the note has no front, so to speak. So taken together, the effect, it seems to me, is festive and yet somehow always inherently grave, thoroughly immaterial, like the bell itself, and yet somehow unearthly. Maybe that's why the practice of sounding what Shakespeare calls the sullen bell tolling a departing friend reaches back a long way. Already in the Bayeux tapestry, prepared by uh, Anglo-Saxon women, you can see two men with handbells following the corpse of Edward the Confessor as it's carried towards Westminster Abbey. It's the, the abbey you can see there, of course, is not the current one. It's its Anglo-Saxon predecessor, which at the time of the tapestry was so new, the, the, the ladies who produced the tap, tapestry had the wonderful idea that the way you could show that it was new was by having the person just installing the weather vane on the top. And you can see that being done, I hope. A particularly sharp association between bells and death is offered by the St. Sepulchre's Jailer's Bell that I mentioned to you earlier, which was rung outside the condemned cell with an accompanying rhyme. Now, thanks to the kindness of the church, I have the bell here, which has been taken out of the safe, and here it is. It is a 16th century bell, and it was, as I say, rung outside the condemned cell, together with a rhyme and that's what's going to happen now. So you just have to imagine that your appointment with death is fixed and is not far off. All ye that in the condemned hole do lie, prepare you, for tomorrow you shall die. Watch all and pray, the hour is drawing near, that you before the Almighty must appear. Examine well yourself, in time repent, that you may not to eternal flames be sent. And when St. Sepulchre's bell in the morning tolls, the Lord above have mercy on your soul. Don't I get applause for that? <laughs> I assure you, that performance emerged from hours of sleepless rehearsal, so I'm very... <laughs> I, I don't know when that bell was last rung, maybe by some curious person who took it out of the safe, but there it is. It's a bell from the time of Shakespeare, or a little bit before, that many persons heard in contexts rather less congenial than this one. The composer Handel, as you may know, described England as the ringing aisle when he came here. So many bells did he hear when he first settled in London. We still hear them, of course, and that's a medieval legacy to us that the complex sound of bells still has a place in the soundscape despite the clamor of noise generated by traffic and machinery. It seems to me, and perhaps to you, that few things are more evocative of a great city with a medieval core than public bells chiming the hours, often, of course, at slightly different times. 
As Philip Larkin says in one of his poems, bells in clocks do not so much proclaim the time as discuss it, each one intervening when it thinks fit, because the clocks and their bells do not quite agree what time it actually is. That's what poets can do for you, find a wonderfully felicitous phrase. Well, in London, you can still hear that, or just about, and in cathedral cities and in Oxford and Cambridge, you can hear it a great deal. And it was in the 14th century, right in the Middle Ages, for the most part, that clocks began to mark the passing of time with their bells in great municipal and cathedral time pieces. These remarkable pieces of ironmongery with their gears, springs and weights, some of them still in working order, like the one at Wells, for example, in Somerset, marked the beginning of what has been called by some historians, and I think rightly, merchant's time. The time of those who reckoned the hours, minutes and seconds with care because they could be translated into pounds, shillings and pence. So however evocative and picturesque they may seem, Bells did have their place in the making of London as a great financial and commercial centre. Well, in England, bells in great towers were so common in country places as well as in the cities that they found their way into the irrepressible grotesqueries of medieval art, notably the borders of books of hours and psalters where virtually anything can happen. A lot of it, of course, scatological and obscene. It's one of the great puzzles of medieval art is quite what those images are for and what they're doing there. Well, you have a a mild example on your handout. Part of the joke of some of these illustrations, obviously, is that animals are showing things, doing things that humans would do, sometimes with reversal. So a couple of rabbits with a crossbow hunt a man who's running away after them and so on. This particular one, as you can see, shows a rabbit pulling the ropes of two bells in the bell tower of a church. Well, as that suggests, to approach a medieval settlement at certain times of the day, especially towards dawn, was to hear bells sooner or later. It was when you heard a bell, not when you saw a light or the smoke of a fire, that you knew you'd found civilization or something like it. Here, for example, is a description of a woman and her child making their way through the medieval countryside during the night and into the dawn. And I've taken it from a 14th century English romance and I've modernized the English. The maiden took the baby with her and stole away in the evening. She passed over a wild heath through field and wood all the long winter night. The weather was clear and the moon bright and she came to the edge of a forest. She arose and continued on, passing many walls and houses until she saw a church with a fair high steeple. There were no streets or town, only a convent of nuns, well prepared to serve God day and night. Then dawn arrived, the porter arose, said his prayers, rang the bells, lighted the candles, laid out the books, and prepared for the day. Well, that picture could be broadened, indeed extended, to the whole of Western Europe, really. In the Middle Ages, travelers knew they were leaving what they called Latinitas, the place where worship was conducted in Latin, broadly speaking, Western Europe. They knew they were leaving it when they ceased to hear bells and see bell towers. You see, bells, metal bells, were not widely used in the churches of Byzantium, the eastern churches, 
until the 12th and 13th centuries when they were adopted, it seems, under the influence of crusaders. Now, that's a sweeping claim, and it's one that's often been made, but crusaders certainly did set about the work of founding bells as soon as they began to carve out the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem at the beginning of the 12th century. You remember that the first crusade is preached in 1095 at what's now Clermont-Ferrand. And by 1099, against all expectations, a party of armed knights had managed to actually to conquer Jerusalem and began setting about, this is the first crusade, began setting about creating an infrastructure of parishes and churches. And the principal church was, of course, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, which contains both the site of Golgotha, or Calvary, and the reputed site of the tomb of Christ. And that's what's being referred to in this passage from the chronicler Albert of Aachen, writing about the year 1100. He says, It pleased the highest prince in Jerusalem, Duke Godfrey, and all others, that twenty brothers in Christ should be installed in the church of the sepulchre for the celebration of the liturgy. Thus, fittingly restored for divine service by the Catholic Duke and the Christian princes, they commanded bells of brass and other metals to be cast, at whose signal the brothers would hurry to the church to sing praises in psalms and to celebrate masses, and the people hearing this would hasten together. Bells, in fact, were so strongly associated with the Christian civilization of the Latin West and with its contested frontiers that Islamic armies are reported to have removed them in what's commonly called the Arab conquest of Spain. In the year 977, so substantially after the first wave of conquest, the de facto ruler of Al-Andalus, Al-Mansor, took the bells from the church of Santiago de Compostela to the great mosque at Córdoba. But with the reconquest of that city by King Ferdinand III in 1236, they were taken back. Here's the chronicler Rodrigo Jiménez de Rada, who died in 1247, Archbishop of Toledo, who tells that story about as succinctly and plainly as you could wish. He says, Almansor took the bells of Santiago to the Mesquita in Córdoba, to the shame of Christian people, where they were hung to perform the office of lamps. But King Ferdinand had those sem bells taken to St. James, and they were restored to the church of Santiago. <clears throat> Taken down from its tower and laid on the ground, the bell of a great church like Santiago, or for that matter this one, would seem, don't you think, a very inhuman thing, massive, cold, immovable, and thoroughly dead. But that's not how people in the Middle Ages spoke of bells, and under their influence, it's not really how we speak of them now. We still say, don't we, that bells have a lip or a mouth, and the clapper, the part that actually makes the sound, is commonly called the tongue. Specialists in these things, and there are many, and I defer to them, speak of the waist of a bell and of its shoulder. And there was another respect in which a bell might be humanized, become a person. And the clue lies hidden in the antiphon that Catherine's now going to sing, that I'd like you to hear. Asperges me, Domine. Thou wilt sprinkle me, O Lord, with hyssop. You don't have it on the handout. With hyssop, and I shall be cleansed. Thou wilt wash me, and I shall be washed whiter than snow. Pity me, O God, 
according to thy great mercy. Now that antiphon was often appointed to be a song while a bell was being blessed by a priest or bishop. See, a bell was not a mere piece of ecclesiastical furniture, like a lock or a bolt on the door. It was a participant in rites made sacred by anointing with holy water. A bell, you might say, was ordained to be a bell in a special ceremony somewhat as a priest was ordained to be a priest. Now the Roman church of the Middle Ages had a right for the blessing and anointing of an ecclesiastical bell, which includes these momentous lines. Bless, O Lord, this water with heavenly benediction, and let the power of the Holy Spirit come upon it, so that when this vessel is moistened with it, the power of enemies, the shadow of phantoms, the onrush of storms, the beating current of rivers, the harm of thunders, the disaster of tempests, and all stormy winds may recede far away wherever its ring will sound. When Christians hear its clamor, let the devotion mounting within them increase, so that, hastening to the lap of their merciful mother, they may sing a new song to you. I'm sure you notice the close association in that, between the ringing of bells and storms. The process whereby humankind gradually learned that storms are not caused by demons of the air, which bells high in their towers were in a good position, as it were, to trap and attack, but were rather caused by particular meteorological conditions, forms an intriguing chapter, I think, in the history of scientific thought, which is also part of the history of religious thought, since the great reformers of the 16th century included some who were opposed to the diabolical interpretation of storms and the associated ringing of bells to exorcise the demons of the air. 
Well, if you think that the ceremonial moistening of a bell sounds like a kind of baptism, I really do have to agree. And so did those reformers who opposed the practice, many of them. Indeed, some medieval writers are really quite explicit about this, and they talk about a baptismus campanarum, a, a baptism of the bells. But perhaps the most extraordinary chapter in this humanization of the bells concerns their need, the need of the bell, that is, in certain circumstances, to atone for its misdeeds. Indeed, to do penance. And so that I can explain that, I'd like you to hear that antiphon just once more. Asperges me. I shall, be, I shall be washed whiter than snow. Bells were, if you like, in a state of grace. Sinless, like Adam, our first parent, before the end. But bells, like Adam, could fall, and in more senses than one. Let me introduce you to the English scholar Alexander Neckham, who died in the year 1217 and his treatise De Naturis Rerum, On the Natures of Things. In this book, he not only sells, says that bells are in effect baptized, we already know that now, but that there was a procedure for punishing a bell when it committed a grave sin. This is what he says. A bell represents the office of a preacher, whence in some places bells are baptized to show that nobody is permitted to preach, save those that have undergone baptism. If, by some unfortunate chance, a bell falls and kills a man, then it is filled inside with thorns as a mark of penitence. When seven years have passed, the bell is reintroduced to its former function and sounded. So, that's how a bell does penance for murder. You take it down, you upend it, and you fill it with thorns, a punishment presumably uh, alluding to God's rebuke to Adam just after the fall in another sense. Thorns also and thistles shall the ground bring forth to thee. Well, given that bells were capable of being baptized and of committing a crime and having to do penance for it, it's hardly surprising that they were often given familiar and common names. Now, that's obviously still with us. Most Londoners, I think, perhaps all of them, know that Big Ben is actually the main bell in the clock tower at Westminster and not the clock tower itself, though I'm sure many tourists think that. In the Middle Ages, though, 
it was very common for bells to have their names inscribed upon them, often with an inscription in the first person, as if the bell were actually speaking. Many of them, as you could probably guess, are prayers, as if the bell, when sounded, is to send the words of the prayer heavenwards, but translated from the encumbrances of human speech into the pure and reverberant hum, the language of bells. Some of these inscriptions are, of course, very brief. It's a very arduous business to make them, perhaps just Ave Maria, Hail Mary, sometimes extending, extending further to a little bit more of the Magnificat, Ave Maria, Grazia Plena, Dominus Tecum. But others, especially some of the later ones, go really quite a good deal further than that, quote pieces of the liturgy and name the bell founder, as in this example from 1268, which I translate for you. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Christ overcomes, Christ reigns, Christ rules. This is the bell of the friars minor of the city. Andreoctus, son of Bartholomew the Pisan, made me. 1268. Some other inscriptions, of course, are curses. The bell issuing in its own language, so to speak, a stern warning to anyone who might dare to remove it from its rightful home. A bell which hung in the tower of an abbey in France to cross the channel in a moment from 1639 until sometime actually in the later 19th century was inscribed with these words, Dubois the abbot had me cast to call the people to holy prayers. I cheerfully obey this command. Let whosoever would remove me from my office and my location perish and be struck by lightning. Well, that threat is not an empty one, of course, being struck by lightning, for there are, in fact, many recorded cases in the Middle Ages of bell ringers being electrocuted by lightning strikes, presumably because they were hard at work trying to exorcise the demons of the air. Most inscriptions, you'll be pleased to hear, of course, were rather less threatening than that. One of the earliest English bells to survive simply proclaims Ricard de Wimbis Mephiste, Richard from Wimbish made me. You'll notice, by the way, that the bell speaks in French. Bells could do that in the wake of the Norman conquest, but they gave it up after a while. Another medieval bell speaks in verse, calls itself Catherine, presumably in honor of Saint Catherine, and announces that it will pray to the Virgin Mary. The inscription runs, I'll do it in the original, in God is all, quod Gabriel, e Catherine, God is derlinge, tu de mari shali singe. So, in God is everything, said Gabriel. I, Catherine, the darling of God, to thee, Mary, shall I sing. In some cases, the donor of the bell speaks through the sound of his or her gift. Here's one of my favorites. Help, Marie, quod Roger of Kirkby. Help, Mary, says Roger of Kirkby, whoever he was. There's a strong sense here, isn't there? Don't you think of something magical, or if that seems the wrong word, of conjuration and exorcism. The supernatural power that a bell could work, uh, especially if it bore the name of a saint, was widely recognized. And, pu and pilgrims who visited the tomb of Thomas a Becket, for example, at Canterbury, often returned home with little bells marked with the name Thomas. They were called Thomas bells. And they were expected to carry the power of the saint, a kind of small charge of it, as if somehow the bell, the little bell, by being close to the saint's relics, had been charged up 
as if by the transmission uh, you know, of, some, of electricity into a battery so that you could take it away and it would release some of what it had been charged with. So they weren't just a token of the saint. They were, in a sense, his agents in the home, but far from the shrine where his body lay. And this continuing humanization of the bell, which is one of the main themes I want to put across to you, could sometimes be carried to the point where bells were expected to ring of their own volition and according to their own good judgment. There's a 13th century life and miracles of St. Anthony of Padua. Anthony of Padua, as you know, is one of the great Franciscan saints of the 13th century. And it tells how um, the people of Lisbon, where Anthony was born, realized that their native son had been canonized far off in Rome because of the wondrous fact that the bells of the same city, with nobody touching them, gave sound all by themselves. Nobody rang them, but they rang. Perhaps that's why one of the chants for St. Anthony summons bells, here called by their standard medieval Latin name of cymbala, to join other musical instruments in praising the saint. You have the text on your handout. And since it's very brief, I've asked Catherine to sing it twice. And this is an example of what was called the rhymed office. And you can see that the text has this constant O assonance at the end of lines. Sono tu by timbano, chitarra psalterio, cymbalisquideum coro, cortis organo, laudat in Antonio, mystice cormeum. Since the standard name for bells in the Middle Ages was simbala, sometimes you get campana, but you very often get simbala, it means that bells naturally became part of that very rich language of the Psalms. You may remember Psalm 150, the famous one where David calls upon uh, the musicians of the temple, the Jewish temple, to praise God in many, many different kinds of instruments, uh, one of which is simbala, in simbalis benesenantibus, in well-sounding bells is how that was understood in the Middle Ages. And here, that's exactly what you see in this text, isn't it? The reference to the bells is encased within a very sustained allusion to Psalm 150, to that rapturous praise of God on every instrument from the Jewish temple orchestra. Well, given the sacred character of a bell, blessed and anointed by the bishop of, or priest, 
It wasn't something that everybody could have. You can't just have a bell in the Middle Ages because you feel like it. Some had rights to a bell, and some did not. So here, for example, is a passage from the Foundation Charter for the Hospital of Kingsthorpe in Northampton, and it's dated, nice round number, it's dated 1200, I quote. We grant that the liturgy be celebrated in that place, and that in perpetuity there be only two altars, one in the chapel of the Holy Trinity and the other in the chapel of St. David, and we grant only one bell to be rung and a cemetery for the burial of the poor of pilgrims and any others dwelling there. Or this, where Peter de Roche, who was Bishop of Winchester, legislates for the bells of the hospital in Portsmouth. And I quote, In the aforesaid hospital, divine service may be celebrated according to the parochial rite of the Church of Portsmouth. And they may have two bells which are not to exceed the weight of the bells of the Mother Church, which shall only ring at matins, at masses, and vespers, and for the dead. Or again this from the year 1293. In this year, the lepers of Dunstable set up a larger bell beyond the entitlement of their house upon two wooden supports. But the prior of Dunstable Priory, learning of this, removed it. He restored it to them afterwards on the condition that they would by no means use it or any other bell to summon parishioners or any congregation. You can see the, the, the formal clergy do not wish bells to be creating a confusing soundscape so you don't know when you're being summoned to the, to the mother church. Although a bell is a decidedly material thing, and I've emphasized that a number of times, it seems to me that one of the fascinating things about bells is the contrast between the extraordinary depth and aerial nature of the associations we have with them, and yet they're very solid, lumpen, you might think, material nature. They just don't look as if they want to be stirred into any kind of life, and yet, of course, they can be. Though it's decidedly material, it was widely believed that God used invisible bells to make his will known or to give a warning. And in fact, medieval chronicles are full of accounts of people hearing bells where there was no church, often in wasteland that was later to become the site of a monastery, where a, a, a monastery was going to be founded. So the sound of the bell, as it were, sometimes combined with the sound of angels, was, if you like, a, a sort of prefiguration of the sanctification of that space that was going to occur when the church was actually created. So we read, for example, in a 13th century life of Otto, Bishop of Bamberg, that his retinue one day passed the night camped in a field on the outskirts of the city. And, I quote, in that place where two nut trees planted long ago still survive, it is often reported that the noise of bells can be heard so that the sound is clearly audible to the local people. And there's a similar report in the life of Celestine V, who was pope for just five months in 1294. This is what we read there. It's my last extract. Entering the oratory, they began to celebrate the divine office. They heard the sound of many great bells. This place was so remote from the habitations of men, that it could not be 
It just could not be the sound of any bell located nearby. The men were astonished and therefore wondered much upon hearing such a thing. Two of them left the oratory, raised their eyes to heaven, and burst into tears. When the office was over, the four men were in a frightened and tearful state, saying, where is the place where these bells are being made to sound? Where is this place? At the hour of Vespers, entering for the office, they heard a great sound of bells again from the beginning to the end. At all of the hours, day and night, these four men heard that same sound until they left. All four turned to the Lord and assumed the monastic habit, giving all they had to the poor. Bells in the Middle Ages could change your life. Thank you. For more information, please go to the Gresham College website, www.gresham.ac.uk.